you, you sound like like a Twinkie with frosting on top. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Conf. Newbie Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Max Wood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. This conference is focused on people who are new to programming who want to learn what the pros know or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current and a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 12th, and the call for proposals is open until April 28th. So come join us at newbieremoteconf.com. Hello, and welcome to Freelancer Show, episode 252. Our special guest today is Brent Weaver from YouGurus. I'm Philip Morgan. Our panelist today, our one and only panelist today, is Jonathan Stark. Hello. Brent, welcome. Glad to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here, Philip. So, why don't we start with this? Brent, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Brent Weaver. I'm the CEO and co-founder of YouGurus. We are a business accelerator for freelancers and digital agency owners looking to grow their business to lead an amazing life. I have to ask... For the longest time, I was like, is that micro gurus or you gurus? That, <laughs> how did it end up being what it is today? In terms of uh, you gurus, like what, what were the name well, came bo- from? Both the name and the history of the program. Yeah. So uh, I guess the name, um, not the craziest story in the world, but I used to run a blog called BC Gurus. I know it sounds crazy, but it was for an Adobe product called Business Catalyst. And we ran that site, or we still run the site to this day. But we decided in uh, 2012 that we wanted to take some of the ideas that we had been successful with in a very, very small niche and make those uh, open to a broader audience of web professionals and digital agency owners. And so we, we thought about it and I was like, oh, let's just do you gurus. Like everybody could be a guru. And uh, we checked the domain name and somebody owned it, but they forgot to renew it and it was in the grace period and then it was going up for auction. And so we, uh, I bid on the name and won it for a whopping $12.75. <laughs> I think it fell through the cracks of something, but uh, that was, that was the, the origin story of the name. It was like we wanted to do something that wasn't specific to a content management system and something that would be a broader appeal. And that's how we chose it. Cool. I guess give a little background on what YouGurus is. I think we're going to bend the arc of this conversation towards sales because I know that's something that I struggled with. Uh, I think everybody I've ever talked to (laughs) has struggled with it because if you're a freelancer, you're probably not like a born salesman. So we'll get there, but I'm kind of curious a a little more detail about YouGurus and uh, how you got started and so forth, aside from the domain name. So we started YouGurus in 2012, but I had run a digital agency for 12 years. Uh, I did not call it a digital agency when I first started the business. Uh, I was in high school. I, I don't think I knew what a digital agency was. I got into making websites uh, for a PC gaming kind of niche. And I ran this this website. Um, it was kind of a gaming news website. And I had all these server costs. And 
I couldn't cover them with my measly $6 and, and 75 cent, uh, minimum wage weekend job. <laughs> and so, uh, or I was more interested in spending that on other things. And so I had to make some money. And so decided to start telling people I could make websites and somebody hired me, uh, a candy store for $500 to build a, a two page order form, built that in about a day, two days and was like, Oh, well, this is way cooler than working for minimum wage. And you know, most of my friends in high school are also working for minimum wage and I just made $500 in two days of work. So I went into my boss's office and I just said, Hey, I quit. Um, I'm not working at this fabric store anymore. Um, <laughs> and cause that's the kind of job you get in high school, just like whatever you can find. And so started to, you know, created a company, you know, again, I was in high school, like went down to the County office, registered a business, opened a bank account with a friend of mine. So we kind of went into business together and I don't think we thought it would last as long as it did. And we, you know, we both went to college and kept the business alive. It was kind of this web design, programming, hosting, you know, anything that we could get our hands on in terms of a job, we would just figure out how to do it. And so then in, um, in 2005, when we were finishing up school, we, we decided that uh, instead of going to get real jobs, we'd basically try to take our company full time. And, um, and then Steve moved up to Boulder where I was going to school and, uh, we started trying to get clients and, and, you know, first just, I think we even just went to Craigslist. I think that was like where we got our first handful of clients was just following up with ads and, you know, calling people and trying to get referrals. And, um, it was, uh, it was definitely kind of scraping by for a while. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious what Jonathan's first job was. <laughs> My first job was mowing, <laughs> mowing grass. <laughs> Do paper roots count? It was paper root. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I was oh, an entrepreneur, entrepreneur from the very beginning. A paper that's, a, that's always a good uh, origin story, the, the paper route. I think people can imagine like the kid in like the rain and the sleet and the snow trudging uphill both ways. That was me, big time, New England paper route. <laughs> it was very, very cold a lot of times or very hot. It really depended. But then my most interesting, my first real job job where I got a paycheck was a barker at an amusement park for the the games so like i ran the can smash game and i would say step right up for a dollar let's try your luck wow smash the can. yeah <laughs> that's awesome yeah it was pretty great actually i've been watching and of course it just blanked from me but the some new hbo show about a comedian and they introduced the idea of barking and it seems like a really hard job to just like go up to random people and be like come do this and they kind of ignore you most of the time yeah i had a blast with it i don't I, I don't know what that says about me, but it really, I mean, I suppose it makes perfect sense considering what we're doing right now, but I didn't have a problem with it whatsoever. Kind of enjoyed it. So I, when you're 15, you get your kicks, however you can get them. I mean, before the fabric store, just talking about, you know, first entrepreneurial ventures, because I think that's pretty common for most entrepreneurs. They have something where they went out and tried to make money. And I've tried to really think about that because I had, I had a rollerblade repair stand that <laughs> did not go well. Once I had serviced the, uh, the four friends I knew's rollerblades and that was it. And there was not a whole lot of business coming by on the street. Um, but then I think even in, uh, I was like, I was trying to remember the very first thing I think in fourth grade, you know, people would make like those friendship bracelets mm -hmm. and I was like, Oh, everybody wants these. So like we got to sell these things. And I think that totally like voids the whole idea of it's a friendship bracelet. I was like hawking the, the friendship <laughs> bracelets and like created like a little bit of a production line. And then my parents tell me that when I was about seven or eight, I would sell seashells on the boardwalk. Basically, I'd get my cousins to go find shells and they'd be, bring me back a whole bunch of really bad, like 
bad uh, product. And I would say, no, 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 not that, not that. And they're all older than me. And I'm like, go back to the beach, go back to the beach, give me something better. And then I'd turn around on the, on the boardwalk and I'd sell these seashells and, and make some money. I am completely retracting what I said earlier about people not being a born salesman. (laughs) 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 So Brent, I know that a lot of, I mean, this was true for me. This is true for most of the people I know who end up working for themselves doing some kind of, let's call it skill-based work, like building websites or copywriting or design or software development or that kind of thing. They get into it because they have this love of the craft and then they start to feel this tension between doing this necessary evil to get paid to do the craft that they love doing. Uh, so the necessary evil is sales, right? And they feel this tension between that and actually doing the craft. Did you ever experience something like that? Or was sales always like the thing you liked most more than building websites? You know, I like, I like working on cool projects and with great people. And I think that in order to do that, in order to find really, really interesting things to do, big problems, I think you have to start to understand how how to sell or, you know, the mechanics of it. And even though maybe I was a born, like had some of those tendencies of, of salesmanship and things like that, there was still a lot of mechanical things that I just did not do really well. And I think that was just a lack of good instruction and good mentorship around sales. So maybe my personality is is more tilted towards persuasive speaking or, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are, you know, to some extent born salespeople. I mean, they, you know, try to convince your parents to like get you a toy or whatever, you know, you have to figure (laughs) out how to persuade or some kids try to manipulate or some kids, you know, are great negotiators. And I feel like that, um, that was probably me, but I think that there was a lot of times that I was really bad at what bad at that component. I think back to my first, my first really big, pitch and you know it was this this uh it was in 2005 it was right after we finished school and decided to to do the business full-time or actually because of this pitch we decided to do the business full-time went out to california got invited out by a nonprofit out there and uh it was like you know a 50 to a hundred thousand dollar project that was kind of the budget range that they had provided us so we thought oh man this is our break this is the thing i mean this is a huge deal for us you know we were full-time in the business that we you know added it up. And if we landed the hundred K deal, you know, for us at the time, that would have been like a year's worth of runway. Cause we were just totally bare bones lifestyle at that point. So it would have been a really big deal for us and it would only have been maybe a three month project. So it would have been great for the business. And, um, we even had all of the questions cause my friend worked at this nonprofit. So he gave us all of the questions ahead of time. Like we had the inside edge and we just totally failed miserably at the the pitch because we didn't, you know, the only thing I knew about selling was really from, you know, some snippets throughout several, you know, movies like boiler room or something, which is like a terrible, <laughs> terrible, like all I knew was from, from basically Hollywood's depiction of sales, like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross or boiler room or, you know, these different movies that had, you know, business people and, and you needed to show up in a suit and a, and a tie and have a slide deck and stand up in front of people and point a lot and say important things. And the client that we were pitching was actually a, it was a nonprofit organization. It was called Calcasa, California Coalition Against Sexual Assault. 97.5% of their, their employees and their team were women. And a lot of them, because of the nature of the organization, had had some type of experience with sexual assault in their life. So we went in in black suits 
and ties and white shirts. And it was just, it was like, it was over at that moment because we basically <laughs> didn't understand the culture. We didn't understand the the problems they were trying to solve. And honestly, we didn't spend one second in that meeting trying to understand them. We just, we just gave them answers and talked about our cool content management system that we had spent four years building and, you know, all the cool features that it had and, and, and this and that, and just did not spend a second learning about the organization. I actually am pretty competent or confident that we did not ask one question in that sales meeting. So even though I maybe have some natural sales tendencies, I didn't understand some basic mechanics. And that was a huge opportunity that we just like, you know, got a big no on and there was no way around it. Wow. So, so you learned how to sell from Vin Diesel, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's painful to listen to. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's some some other ones that are, are p- painful, but you know what was it, funny? I mean that that experience, even though it sounds like it was wrought with failure, um, it it did kind of solidify uh, for my business partner and I. We we're like, this could be a real business, and you know, we ended up having some drinks, you know, at, after the pitch meeting, cause we found out very quickly that we did not get the job and we drank until like three or four in the morning. And I think it was on the patio of my friend's house that we basically said, you know, could this be a business? Could we go do this full time? Is this something that we want to, you know, do more of? And, um, and, and we decided to, to go forward with the business, even though we had basically lost on this huge opportunity. How long did it take you to see the things that went wrong to understand what went wrong? Oh, years, years. I mean, we obviously knew something went, you know, it was interesting because my friend worked at this nonprofit. So he came, you know, and we were staying in his house, literally had the inside edge and he like went to bat for us. He was like, no, you know, you guys are misjudging these people. But literally the, the people that we had pitched to just some, some of them could not get over the perception, their immediate, you know, seven second, like people judge people and they could not get over that. I think at the time, you know, they, they said something along the lines of, you know, those guys could have been two dudes we met at a Miami club. It's like, what? like, and, and no matter how smart we sounded, this, you know, perception, this visual perception for at least a couple of people in the room, they just, they could not get over that. So we understood, I think at that point, like maybe we, we screwed up, but I don't think I really even understood like what the solution was, how to fix that problem moving forward, except to maybe not wear a suit ever again in a pitch meeting, unless it was entirely appropriate for the audience that you were pitching to. So, so I learned that, but I don't think I really understood um, what I'd call sales discovery um, for, for years later, probably until around 2007, 2008 was when we started to really change our sales methodologies from the, the status quo process of client calls you, you pick up the phone, talk to them for an hour or two hours, and then you say, oh, great, you know, I'll email you over a quote, and then you hang up, and 90% of the time, you never talk to them again. Um, that's kind of the status quo process that we were engaged in, and um, it's just, it's not that it won't work 10% of the time. It's it's just that it's, it's bad for the client. It's bad for um, their business. Ultimately, you're not bringing your expertise and your talent and your knowledge and wisdom to the table, and you're not providing enough space to really dig into the client's problems well enough to where, you know, maybe the solution that they think they need isn't really the solution they need. And you can come in and provide that, uh, that wisdom and expertise to them. And there's just some basic mechanics you should probably follow if you want to go that direction with your business and not be the commodity, you know, the commodity web designer order taker type person. So you said it took years for you to sort of unpack what happened, what went wrong, what you could do differently. What, what were the things that you would do differently. I mean, you're sort of alluding to them, but what could people do 
you know, if they, if someone was going into a pitch tomorrow, what's like the top thing you would recommend that they do? Oh, if I just had to pick one thing, I would go in with kind of a, uh, a blank canvas and with, you know, very little expectations. And I would ask a lot of questions and just be insanely curious. And I would, you know, of course, answer any questions they had for me, but I would really just spend as much time as I could understanding their organization beyond just the project that we were talking about today, because the best clients are the ones that you can understand so well that the, whatever project is sitting in front of you is just one one win in a series of great work that you can do with a client. It's not that you'd come in and just, you know, parachute in and do one $80,000 project and leave. I think if I would have looked at what that organization was spending over a, a decade on web and digital, they, they might've spent, you know, seven figures or more on various web and, and, um, software initiatives that we could have probably helped them with. So it would have been better for me to really understand their organization backwards and forwards and get them in the room talking about themselves. I feel like most people enjoy talking about themselves, enjoy talking about what they're passionate about, what makes their, uh, you know, moves their needle. And I didn't do that at all. So I think that, you know, if it had, you know, Brent today gone in that room and let's say I had zero time to prepare. That's another thing that I would, I would tell people is if you get, if you gave me two tips, it would be to spend at least the amount of time you're about to be in the meeting, uh, preparing for the meeting. You can do an insane amount of research in just an hour, uh, to prepare yourself. And we did prepare. We just didn't prepare ourselves in the right way. We, we prepared ourselves to know more about what we did, not to prepare ourselves more about who the client was. So we were super prepared on our technology and our processes and our design methodologies and our content management system and, and all of the stuff that we knew about ourselves. Like we just, and that kind of stuff you probably know anyways. And so I would have, if I had time to prepare, I would have prepared more about the customer and the client and what I thought about, um, what I could learn about their organization and the overall industry their organization serves and the population they serve. I would have spent more time doing that. Um, and, and really just so it would inform the questions that I would ask, um, not so I could go in front of them and, and wow them with all of the great things I found out about them and repeat that information back to them because then it would be me talking and not them talking. So I would use that information to inform my question um, asking and, and then really try to figure out like, what's the essence? Like, why are these people coming to the table wanting to spend you know, $80,000 on a web project. Like what is the thing that if they could do this one thing, then it would give everybody in the room, you know, uh, you know, a, a warm and fuzzy feeling. They would feel like their mission and their organization was, was more successful. And sometimes it takes a while, especially in the case that we had, which was eight stakeholders in the room. Each of those stakeholders have their own incentive and motivation for why they're in the room, how that website project is going to affect their department or the work that they do in the organization. And it really was my job to help facilitate that discussion because they only knew you know, so much about web projects. This might be the one web project they do I mean, for some of the team members in the decade that they're at that organization. And so they really don't have a lot of experience with doing this type of work, whereas I do this every day. I'm doing web projects all the time. So facilitating that discussion between eight people. And most likely what would have happened is everybody by the end of that hour or two hours in the conference room would have been like, oh, my God, 
we, we, we now know more about what we don't know. And we need you in this organization as soon as possible, just to figure out, you know, we thought we needed to build X, Y, and Z, but what we found out after talking to you for a couple hours that maybe we need to build X, Y, Z and ABC or X and Y and B or something else than what we thought. And that can, that's a really powerful place to be at as a provider of services, whether freelance or agency. Preaching to the choir. <laughs> <That's exactly laughs> what I, I call it a why conversation. It's like just go in there and ask questions and talk about yourself as little as possible. So I, I could not agree more with that advice. And and so we have we have this this boot camp program and a lot of people come in and they say, Well, just give me the list of questions. Or they say, Can I just send this in a survey? And it just I'm like, ah, missing the point. And you know, it's about being curious. It's about maybe not having all the questions ahead of time. And that's a really hard thing for people to understand. And that's where you you become much more valuable as a consultant and your hourly goes from, you know, if you're charging seventy-five bucks an hour right now and you can learn uh, become more business savvy and in a way become more sales savvy, you know, your hourly rate can, can skyrocket into the, what I'd consider to be the consultant range, which is really that 200 to $500 an hour, um, range where it's, it's not about pushing pixels anymore. It's about really that strategy stuff. It's about how are you helping them to do high value, uh, work to create high value impact in their organization. And, and that kind of, that kind of insight is, is worth a ton of money and is never going out of style. Yeah. Active listening. It's, it's like you said, you can't really, I think there's a list of questions that you can create to kind of like kick off, you know, like types of questions, you know, ask open-ended questions, not yes or no questions and things like that. But you're right. It's like, you need to, you need to be prepared to go with the flow because the client's going to take you, they'll probably take you all over the place. And your job, in my opinion, is to kind of focus them. It's not really, you know, I guess it is kind of a focus operation normally when I'm talking to somebody because they have a tendency to just like brain dump all over the place and you really want to get in there and be like and and bring them to a place or sort of lead them along to a place where they start to realize what they should do to help their own business you know what i mean like some some a lot of times maybe this is your experience maybe not but i find that a lot of clients by the time they call someone in that's basically a consultant or an outsider of some kind it's probably because they're over their head and they're, they can't see the forest for the trees and they just, everything seems equally important. It's impossible to prioritize anything. They just, just like need help and to, to just give them help without finding out what their problem is, is, you know, in, in the medical profession would be malpractice. So you need to go through the diagnosis and say, all right, you know, what are you guys trying to do? What are the challenges? Where are you at? Where have you been? So on and so forth. We we need a, a digital or freelancer malpractice like like infrastructure. <laughs> I, no, I'm seriously, I, I don't think it'll ever happen, but I, it is a glaring omission that legal and medical have sort of you know a kind of like overarching organization from which you can be ejected, and there's no such thing for consultants or developers or anything like that. I, I don't see it happening, but some sort of it's not. I don't even know what you call those. It's not really a regulatory body, but. Uh, some sort of oversight by sort of self oversight. It, it, it's glaring, glaringly missing, but I don't know how it would ever come to be. I wrote this article a few years ago. It, it was, it was called never say WordPress when selling a web 
design project. And it was really popular, went to the number one spot of Hacker News. And it, I actually didn't even think it was it was that great of an article. I, I don't know if I can say that four years later, but I wrote like six guest posts and I was like really proud of one, like the writing style I did, the types of stories I told. And I was like, oh, this is going to be the one. And it was like this other one that ended up like taking off. But the 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 essence of it was that we had a lot of clients that would come to us and say things like, you know, can you build me a website on WordPress? And it was, it was like, wow, they've already diagnosed their situation. And, and to your point of the why conversation, you know, well, what would that do for you? Why, why do you want that? Um, well, because it, you know, I heard WordPress is, is free and we can update our website. It's like, okay, great. Who, who in your organization is updating the website and like, what are they, what are they doing? And then they'd be like, oh, um, well, I guess I, I, th- I think we should blog or something. It's like, okay, great. Why are you blogging? Like, <laughs> well, because I heard in Inc. Magazine that we should start a blog. Like, right. have you ever written before? Like, well, uh, I write emails. It's like, well, okay. have you ever like published something before? Right. Have you ever written something that, you know, are you a good writer? Do you enjoy writing? Right. And, and they'd be like, well, no, I, I don't really like writing at all. And frankly, I don't have time for it. Great. So you don't have time to manage content on a website. Are you sure getting a website with content management is even the right decision for you? Well, yeah, because we have this one designer who built our website and then whenever we would need to update it, we could never get a hold of him. And then you're like, oh, you hired a bad person who basically was not available, who didn't have infrastructure as a business, wouldn't return your phone calls, wouldn't return your emails, and that's why you want WordPress. Understood. Let me tell you instead a little bit more about our support infrastructure and the types of processes and workflows that we have to support you as a customer. And then let's have a conversation about what your business is actually trying to achieve. And maybe WordPress is right for you. Maybe content management is right for you. Or maybe just you know getting a ghostwriter and blogging for you to attract more customers maybe is a really cool strategy for you guys to get more leads. But you know, it's the conversation usually is really not about it shouldn't have been about all the cool features that WordPress had. And that's where I went. So talking about my, my process as, as a salesperson, as it evolved, uh, for a long time, I, I did kind of what I call the status quo process where I just ask them what they need, then email over a proposal. And then I added a step. I started demoing the platform that we built websites on because I was really excited about all these cool content management systems. At the time, it was you know, Sitefinity or .NET Nuke or Drupal and even WordPress, right? Was in, And we started building on Light CMS and Business Chaos and all these tools I was really excited about. So I always was trying to figure out how fast I can get people into a demo. And I couldn't figure out why the more I did this, the the lower our prices got. We went from doing twenty and $30,000 projects. And then we, over about a year or two, we were struggling to get two grand per website. And I couldn't figure out why. And we were basically in debt, running out of money, and couldn't pay any of our bills. And we were, we were trying to support an agency with $2,000 projects. And I couldn't figure it out. And eventually we had to, to bring in some really smart consultants and they were like, um, <laughs> it's because you're not really following a high value consultative sales process. And that's kind of around 2007, 2008 when we started to make those changes. Yeah, that'd be like the guy that's working on your house giving you a demo of his table saw. It's like, who cares? <laughs> Look at how sharp the teeth are. Oh, and if I accidentally get my finger jammed in it, it's going to automatically stop and just drop down under the table. It's so cool. It's like, so what? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you you sort of, came to the place. I'm curious. I don't know if this is relevant to the audience. I hope it is. I'm curious how you decided that you needed to call someone. Were you, were you just like panicked? You had like, you know, the bank account was running dry and, and, and that was the trigger. And how did you find someone 
to coach you what why was that the option why didn't what other options were on the table when you were kind of in that jam well we owed we had a really cool office downtown we had the uh i don't know a couple thousand square feet on 16th street mall I had employees and we had a really cool conference room with a flat panel TV and leather couches and a uh, frosted glass uh, door with our logo emblazoned on it and uh, a T1 line. This is kind of back in the day, like a dedicated T1, Ooh. which we ended up having to switch to something else because we couldn't pay that bill and we needed to keep the internet. So we ended up like totally just like letting this contract go into like a collection. It, it was, it was bad, bad move, but we kept the business alive. We had to make decisions at the time. And I've, I've talked at length in other, other, other forums and stuff about some of those decisions, but we owed, um, we, you know, we were behind on our payroll by probably about a month. And so in terms of what motivated us, I had to go get an emergency loan. We, we borrowed $50,000 and basically to keep the lights on 25 of that went right out the door. Uh, the second that those checks cleared, to oh, get us God. current on the yeah so then we had like another 25 grand to like keep the lights on for maybe like a month and somebody that friend of ours actually a client a client of ours husband uh at one time had said hey if you guys ever need help like come talk to me and you know so i had three dollars in my personal bank account i bought a, a starbucks venti coffee with that because that's a responsible thing to do when you only have three <laughs> bucks left and my business partner and i like sat down and we're like what are we gonna do and he's like well maybe we should call joe so i called joe and went to this lunch and you know at the time it was just like a lunch with somebody that was a business person but i think in in retrospect that was kind of the first time that we really I really recognize like, Hey, I need to just tell somebody my problems, my back of the house stuff. And Joe, his wife was a client. So going to a client's husband and saying my business is potentially days or weeks away from going under, you know, that's a, there's a risk there of being vulnerable or telling a client that like, maybe they're going to fire us tomorrow because they aren't, you know, don't trust us. So I went out to lunch with him and basically laid it out all, all on the table of what was happening in the business. And he gave me just some, some really simple advice. And we started implementing that advice and change started happening in, in the business. And we ended up doubling our revenue in the, in, in the 12 months that followed um, that basic advice. And that was kind of, and we, obviously there was more conversations with Joe besides just that one lunch, but he, you know, kind of became the first person that said, you know, let me kind of help you and, and give you some direction. He owned a multi-million dollar software services business in Boulder. And so he kind of had some good perspective of really what are those things that are important versus the things that aren't. Cause I was, I was working a hundred percent of my time and most of the things that I was doing were not really the, you know, they weren't creating the, the, the huge impact on the business. It was busy work. I was really, really busy. And, and one of the things I tell people is Joe told me to track my time. And it turned out I was spending about 20 hours a week doing unbilled support and training. This was the 15 minute, like quick update. That's eh, not worth billing. It's not worth billing for that. It's only 15 minutes, right? Those add up mm -hmm. over time and they take additional time out thought process. Like you only have so much you know, brain power in a given day before you have to kind of refresh. And, and these little unbilled client conversations were soaking up a huge amount of my time. So then I, I kind of took, you know, some of the, the tactical things I did was tracked my time, identified that there was all this unbilled support. And then I just handed that off to somebody else in my team and said, okay, every time you do one of these updates, you have to track it in this, in the software and you have to basically bill for it. And so I was able to, to give somebody else that. And, and all of a sudden, you know, there's, at the time, you know, hundred bucks an hour, 20 hours a week, somebody else starts doing in the business. That was two grand a week in support revenue, um, that we did not have prior to doing that. And then I 
repositioned that time for myself in sales and marketing activities. Uh, and so that really started to fix some things, some of our issues. The other thing that we did was, uh, Joe was like, Hey, you guys need to divide and conquer. At the time I was selling and I was managing projects and I was doing some design and development work, which I should not have been doing because I had, you know, I had good people that worked with me that every time I designed, they were like, Oh, here he goes again. He thinks he's a designer. But I, you know, at the time I was okay. Now I'm like bad. It's official. I, I can probably do <laughs> stick figures at best. <laughs> and so then I, <laughs> I split up my partner and I basically said, okay, he said, you should sell and Steve should, you know, manage operations and manage projects. And, you know, it's your responsibility to fill the pipeline as much time as you can spend doing. And then it's his responsibility. He needs to figure out how to deliver and delight. And so that was really, really helpful. So I think just seeing the results of mentorship for me changed my mindset around it. And so then every time I started to see, every time I went to an event and saw somebody that was smart, that was talking, that had ideas that resonated with problems in my business... I would go up after them after the talk and I'd shake their hand and say, Hey, great. I want you to come in and consult with me. And so what that usually turned into was thousand to $2,000 a month retainers for, you know, consultants and just weekly calls of, Hey, this is what I'm doing. What can I do better? And, um, I kept that practice going for about probably about five years. Just every time I heard somebody smart, I was like, cool, I'm going to hire you for maybe it's a month, maybe it's six months. Maybe it's the guy that I, I hired to help me with my sales process. Probably worked with him for, I don't know. I mean, I still work to them to this day. We're just not on a regular retainer. Um, but I still, you know, every time I get frustrated with our sales process or issues we have around that, I say, Hey, come in and, you know, I'll pay him a thousand bucks for an hour long meeting just because I'm like, cool, let's just help me figure this out. Cause, cause you have different perspective and different, uh, vantage points. So that, that practice helped us to at least double our agency's revenue year after year and ultimately led to us selling the business, you know, for a successful exit. Awesome. Rags for riches. Well, riches to rags to riches. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of things you said earlier on, Brent, that I'm real curious about. I don't know if you meant to do this. I don't know how this question is going to come out, but you appeared to link sales to persuasion. <laughs> and do you see sales as a process of persuasion or is that, is that not really the right way to characterize it? Well, okay. So let's go back to like high school and writing a persuasive essay. So I have something or somebody and I want to persuade them to go from, you know, point A to point B. I think that at at some level sales has to have a persuasive element. Now there's, you could take that word persuasion and, and look at it as, as a manipulation. Um, but I think that, you know, that's just, if, if you're not, helping somebody do something that is in their best interest. It's going to be better for them. That's going to be healthier for them. It's going to create positive change in their life and in their business. If you know, as the consultant, as the, the product owner, that this having this thing in their life is going to make their life better, then I don't think it's much sure that there are tactics that could go on the verge of manipulation. Like if somebody doesn't have money and you're trying to figure out how to, you know, get money from them or take food off their table, then that's probably the, the line that's too far to cross. But I think everybody that is that ever buys something has to be persuaded on some level to get off the couch, to sign on the dotted line. I don't think you can sell without having some level of persuasion as a part of your sales process. You have to, you know, I mean, Simon Sinek is, is, is all about that. Like start with why that that's appealing to our you know, neocortex or whatever. And it's, it's trying to appeal on an emotional level to somebody to persuade. So I think that, I think persuasion is a, an absolute ingredient. I don't think you can make a, a sales salad without the, the persuasion sauce. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't start, it doesn't stop with sales either. I mean, if you, if you're, someone has paid you to coach them, for example, you still have to inspire them or call it persuade them to, to take action. You know, if it's, if you're persuading someone to quit smoking, it, it doesn't stop at the sale. You have to, you know, they, they have to follow the materials or go through the course or go through the program. But I, I agree with the implication, which is that the word persuasion has kind of a negative, it, it can have a negative connotation. So maybe inspires, <laughs> inspire <laughs> okay. them to. But th- this can relate well with people that are, are designers that have, if you've ever designed a logo for somebody or a client, let's, let's kind of do a little role play and, and imagine um, I'm a designer and I go into show Jonathan these three new logos that I've designed. And, you know, I basically walk in the room and I just say, Hey John, I have these logos to show you. Here's number one. Okay. Here's number two. Mm-hmm. And here's number three, my least favorite. How's that meeting going to go over? <laughs> right. It's yep. terrible. You're, that's how most designers the, sell. That's not, yeah. When I mean, they're talking about sell. their services, not their logos, not their creative work, but that's how they talk about themselves to their clients when it comes time to talk about money and the scope and the work that they're doing. Which Here's one do you like? Quote. Let me know if you have any questions. Email me if you'd like to move forward. You know, talk to you soon. Yeah, it's weak. You see, the thing is, I feel like clients want you to tell them what to do. They, they're hiring someone who has an expertise that they don't possess. Otherwise, they wouldn't be looking for someone. And the last thing they want is that, air quotes, expert to turn around and ask them to, to drive the whole process. It's, it's crazy, but you're right. That's what, what people do. I mean, developers do it too. It's like, okay, what features do you want? All right, I built it. No one's, few people stop to ask if those collection of, if that collection of features is actually going to do anything positive for the business, they just do it and, you know, charge it by the hour and take the money. So anyway, yeah, just what I tell people is, is your you're leading the process starts from the very, very first interaction that you have with the customer. And if you lead the sales process, if you lead those interactions confidently and in the right way, and you illustrate that you do have a clear cut process to lead the client through and you call their BS when they try to go outside of your process. I mean, you can bend rules. This is not hard and fast stuff, but that training begins in the very, very first interaction. So when it comes time to present the logos or to get feedback from clients or to get them to show up to a regular project check-in meeting and all those types of things, you know, when, when those types of clients, when you have project issues, um, you know, to me, I look at the sales process as the, the trial period. Like, does, is this person willing to schedule meetings with me? Are they willing to return my emails and phone calls? Are they showing up to meetings? Are they excited about me leading them through the process? And if you get red flags in the sales process, it's like a gift. It's like you're, you're getting to find out that this person is a client from hell in the first hour, two hours, three hours of time invested in them. Uh, and then on the, the flip side, if they're not a client from hell and you start to train them in your, your overall expectations of what you want out of your clients, that you, they show up on time, that they give feedback, that they get you everything that you need on time, and, and uh, they're open to you know, your insights and your consultative expertise, then 
that's going to become a much better client. And I would, once I really learned that methodology, we started to say no a lot. I'd get these red flags that I just couldn't get over. Even if it was a 30 or $40,000 project, I'd be like, yeah, but they went dark on me and they wouldn't schedule a meeting. And that to me is like a huge red flag. And, and if they ever did come back from being dark and they said, okay, yeah, we're ready to move forward. I'd be like, yeah, but we need to talk about something first because I'm really freaking out right now because you went dark on me for a month and wouldn't answer my emails and you didn't want to schedule time for us to get an update on what's going on. And that to me is a huge red flag because there's going to be times in our project that I'm going to demand a lot out of you as a client. And if you're not going to be responsive, then I don't want you as a client. Yeah, I say that all the, all the time. I say if you allow clients to push you around in the sales process, why are you surprised when they push you around when the project is going on? It's, it's like it, you're, it's perfect. It's like what you just said is perfect. It's like, those are huge red flags. People listening though are going to say, well, that's nice for you that you can choose, you know, that you can say no to a $30,000 project, you know, now that you're all successful and whatnot, but how do you do that starting out? Like if you're desperate for the money, you're like, er. I know I, I was <laughs> going to bring up the issue of confidence, not like Vin Diesel boiler room style fake confidence, but or arrogance rather, but like there's all of this type of behavior on, on the freelancer or agency side of things is absolutely built on having confidence, right? Confidence in your process being not the, the world's number one process, but a, a competent process, right? And, and confidence that if you say no to this client, there'll be another one that is, is an even better yes. So, Brent, I'm curious how you developed that confidence. Sounds like you had it from an early age if you're bossing around the old kids. Uh, them <laughs> the, their shell output was substandard, but uh, you've also worked with, it sounds like maybe hundreds or thousands of people in your program. So what do you see being important in developing confidence like that? Well, I think the first is uh, to know a process or to be at least introduced to something that's a well thought through framework that has been used by lots and lots of people. But I, you know, and, and I'll mention this later on in, in, in the program and, and actually give your listeners our web design sales kit. It was the first course that I made on sales and it's a video course. It's self-paced and it's great. It basically runs you through my, my sales process. It's about a five or six hour video course with a bunch of downloads and all that kind of stuff. But I sold that course for a year. And then I started calling people up that went through that course and said, you know, Hey, how, how did it go? What, what have you learned? What you, and, and, you know, I could kind of break this down into some rough percentages. There were those people, uh, a lot of people that bought the product and like didn't crack the book. And of course I could judge them, but then I could look at my shelf and look at all the books that I have bought and I have not quite yet read. And it's like my pile of guilt. And so, you know, I was kind of like, Oh, well that's interesting. Okay. You bought a course for 200 bucks. You never watched it. Like, okay, I guess that, that is what it is. And, and this is really common uh, amongst online course providers that people purchase something and, and don't actually complete it. And then there was a people that bought it, started and finish it and maybe got a nugget or two out of it. And they, they, um, you know, Oh, how did that work for you? Oh yeah. It's I, that nugget really changed my business. Great. What kind of projects are you selling now? Yeah. I'm still selling, selling two to $3,000 websites. And I'm like, ah, my God, like, okay, you got a nugget. You feel good about the program, but you didn't really change your core habit and behavior and probably some of your belief statements. And then there was the people that, you know, finished the course and applied some stuff. But again, they would say something like this to me, like, well, 
yeah, I applied it and it, 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 you know, it's great stuff, but it just didn't work for my specific situation, my specific service, my specific market. Right. And I'd be like, well, tell me more about that. And they'd tell me something and I'd say, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, but maybe you just need to tweak the process three degrees this way. And then let's talk in a week and tell me how that went. Right. And then I talked to them in a week and they'd be like, oh my God, like now I get it. And then there was a people that, you know, applied it like verbatim and had great results, but that was a really, really small percentage. And that kept me up at night. And I did not feel like the people that went through our, our video course really got that confidence. And I don't think I really knew why that was, but my solution was if I, instead of having people go through video course, I'll give them basically a video course, but then they'll do weekly calls with me. I mean, I know group coaching is very popular, but I was like, if, if they can just do a call with me every week as a group, I will take them and I, I bet in 12 weeks I can get them to their first $10,000 project. And so we, in April of 2014, we launched our, our 10 K bootcamp program, which is basically, it's, it's more than just our, our sales program. We actually had to bring in some marketing and some operational teachings in that program to help people get the, you know, positioned with the right customers that have those type of budgets. And also what do we do once we have a $10,000 project and how do we deliver that kind of thing? And so when we, we went that direction, we had like a 96% completion and, and it was confidence was the number one thing people told us that they got from the program. And I think the confidence really came from the human connection between you and a mentor. So people that are like you have been through it. And when you have that little voice in your head that says, okay, I just learned this new process and now I have to go implement it with my client. There's that little voice in your head that says, nah, you should just do what you're comfortable with. Let's just do it the old way. Or yeah, let's just apply one of the six things that is in Brent's course. Let's not do all of it. And those little voices of trying, you know, in your head when it comes to trying something new can really be debilitating. And so what we did in our program was implement some very specific methods for accountability, but also some basic coaching of unpacking the core issues so we can change the beliefs that ultimately changed the thoughts, which changed the actions, right? So we had to sometimes change the core belief. And one of those examples of a core belief is, you know, what I do is not valuable. What I do is, is it's just not worth it, the money anymore. And I hear this from web designers all the time. Web design is a commodity. People can buy this for 20 bucks on Wix. So why would they pay me $20,000? And that is a is a core belief thing that, you know, I can give you all the sales methodologies in the world. And if you don't change that belief, then we can't get very far. And that requires us to ask you questions, probably get a little bit personal. And, and then the result of that is a, a changed belief system. And when your beliefs change, the confidence is an outcome. It's okay. We can't go in and try to fix your confidence. We have to change some of those core beliefs. And when we do that, the confidence is a result. People tell us in our exit surveys all the time. It's like, what's the number one thing you got from bootcamp? And they say confidence. Nice. I'm curious. You've mentioned a couple of times attracting the right kind of clients and getting leads. How do you guys recommend that people do that? Are there some, some basic things that are foundational that help with that sort of thing? So people could perhaps be in a position to say no to obvious red flag clients because like, you know, if you're confident that you're going to get another lead tomorrow and that if you take this bad one today, it's going to prevent you from working with the good one tomorrow. Uh, is there maybe some basic direction you can provide there? I feel like I'm entering Philip's area of expertise. So he's going to probably hear whatever I say next and, and like nod and be like, like pat me on the head and be like, OK, <laughs> <No>. but <laughs> so cute when they're puppies. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, I mean, so this was kind of one of, so people would say to us, like I, when they were thinking about our program or when I started to do some, some kind of customer development around creating bootcamp to begin with. And I, you know, some of the problems I would tell people, you know, do you have this problem? And, and one of the problem statements was I can't sell a $10,000 project. So of course they would come back to me with, well, even if you taught me how to sell a $10,000 project, Mike, they're, they're just a hundred percent convinced that their clients today don't have the budget uh, for a $10,000 project. So the problem statement for that was really, um, I can't get leads that have $10,000, right? So it wasn't just about, I have a lead and I can sell them. Now, what I would say is most people, if they would implement our sales process or even the right parts of our sales process that worked for their business, they could probably double or triple their average deal size without doing any more work. So if they're selling $1,500 projects, they could probably easily change the dynamics with just learning a little bit about sales to 3000 or 4500 um, without necessarily changing to a different a different market segment or changing their positioning. Now, if you're selling $1,500 projects to get into a market where you're able to get $15,000 for a project or $30,000 for a project, usually that requires a little bit different strategy for your business. And probably one of the main things is is market positioning or, or positioning. So we try to give people a simple analogy. Like what pond are you fishing from? Um, the leads you get today are the result of some activity. So this happened to me. I was like, man, some of our clients are great and they have lots of money to spend and they're, they're awesome people. And then there's all those other clients that aren't great and um, aren't spending money and don't have budget. So I literally went through all of our clients. I can't remember what year this was, but I printed them all out of FreshBooks and there was, you know, reams of paper of all these customers. And I just went through every single one of them and answered a simple question of like, where did I find this customer and what activity led me to getting this client? And a lot of those clients, we had a lot from referrals and word of mouth, but then I tried to really track that back of like, where did the first client come from? What was the activity, the energy that I expelled that actually got this customer into our business? And so I went through all of that and just realized that there were certain activities, certain things that I was doing that was leading to much higher value clients. And most of that came back to strategic blogging. So putting content in high traffic places, speaking at conferences and events and working through uh, channel partners. So, so associations or other types of businesses that were already selling to high value clients. And then all of of the kind of uh, lower tiered clients would come from places like, oh, when Brent went to the new business meetup at the Chamber of Commerce, it's like, okay, these are all brand new businesses that have no budgets, no money. And yet I'd go to these meetings all the time to meet these new businesses thinking, oh, every new business needs a website. Well, the, the, the problem with that is that most businesses that were attending these things were brand new, had zero revenue, or they were in the the low five figures in terms of, of annual revenue, or I'd be going to, um, you know, random, uh, you know, random business networking meetups or things like that, or, or maybe even some, some Craigslist clients. So it was like realizing for myself that the activities that I was doing, you know, they were the leading indicator to a lead eventually arriving. And so what we try to help people with in our program is just at, answer some basic questions. Like look at your best clients, look at the people that have budgets, what are their demographics, their psychographics, their geographics? Like, where are you getting the most bang for your buck? And trying to figure out if you can replicate that. Now, if you don't have any high value clients right now, then you have to just start kind of taking some guesses of some industries and some business levels that you want to actually try to uh, sell to. Now, I tell people, look, the Small Business Administration recommends to spend about seven to eight percent of your annual revenue on marketing and advertising. So you can do some really basic math, like. 
the business that has $50,000 in annual revenue has about 3,500 bucks a year to spend on all of their marketing and advertising. So if that's your client, if your clients are self-employed coaches that are making 30, 40, 50 K a year, like the economics are just against you. You will never get a 20 K project. Or if you do, that person is going to be so high maintenance because they're expecting this major investment to like quintuple their business. And they're going to be the worst client in the world because you're literally taking 50% of their revenue um, for one project, right? Versus when we would work with Breckenridge Brewery, which eventually got bought by InBev, Anheuser-Busch InBev, you know, this was a company that was doing at the time before they got acquired 50 or $100 million a year. And then they became a part of a billion, multi-billion dollar, you know, consortium or whatever. And, you know, budget was like never like they wanted to make sure they didn't spend too much because they were responsible managers of their internal budgets. But for them, I mean, budget wasn't a major sticking point. They were much more concerned about the quality and the, you know, the design aesthetics and the overall strategy and making sure they had the right team in place for their business. Like they were much more concerned about that stuff than they were about their budget. So, you know, you start have to start asking yourself the question of where do those people hang out? What are the types of events, conferences, trade shows, publications that those people hang out? And maybe you don't know the answer today and that's okay. You just have to start asking yourself that question and then go invest your time in first figuring out where that stuff happens and then invest your time in those circles of people. And I promise you it'll, it'll change the game for yourself. Excellent. I could not agree more. <laughs> So the conventional advice is always leave them wanting more. I know there's probably about 10 interesting avenues we could pursue to follow up, but I think we're going to wind it down and get to picks and then make sure that folks know where they can get in touch with you, Brent, to do that finding out more thing. <laughs> so Brent, you go first. Any picks for our listeners yeah. Well, I guess if you guys have listened to me ranting and raving about sales this long and you're, you're, you you want to know more, you can check out our website, ugurus.com. That's U-G-U-R-U-S.com. I mentioned earlier that we have that web design sales kit program. You can just shoot me an email, brent at ugurus.com and say, hey, I was listening to you guys on the Freelancer Show and I want that free course. And so I'll give you that free course in a 60-minute strategy call just for free. No obligation there. And I'll try to get these guys a, a link to uh, a page that you can just register at to do that much faster than emailing me because sometimes people complain that I don't get back to them for more than 24 hours and uh, they want the course right away. But uh, you can always email me brent at ugurus.com for that um, free course, which I think people really enjoy. It basically walks through in much more detail everything that I talked about today. Nice. Jonathan. Picks. Yes. First, I want, I want to defer to you, Philip. Are you going to pick your self at all this week because if you're not i'm gonna pick an interview i did with somebody yeah, okay. uh yeah. th thanks for checking <laughs> that was yeah, my I'll, only pick <laughs> i'll leave that to you um i was gonna pick that if not because it's amazing next on my list i will say that i was interviewed recently for on a, a podcast called cash flow podcasting and that episode part one of that interview went live so if you're not sick of hearing me yak about this stuff enough, you can head over there uh, to Cashflow Podcasting and check out the most recent episode. Obviously, we'll link it to it in the show notes. And also, uh, I think on topic with what we were talking about earlier today about having that why conversation when you go into a meeting with a client, a sales meeting with a client, 
I recently posted a an article called Fighting Butterflies, which was written the night before I went in to have a two-hour meeting with one of the biggest credit unions in the nation. And about and the reason why I wasn't nervous at all and and why really no one should be nervous when they go into a meeting, no matter how important it might be to their business. So I think people, you know, it's, it's very on topic for the conversation we had today. So I think people will enjoy that article. And that's it for me. Awesome. I have one pick. I do a monthly webinar series for folks who are on my email list. It's I call it Dev Shop Marketing Briefings. Last week, I had the pleasure of interviewing a woman entrepreneur and business owner named Pia Silva. And this is compatible because Pia had a, a story very similar to yours, Brent. She kind of went through that. I mean, it's startlingly similar, really, of like almost running her own business into the ground because she lacked some knowledge about how to do things right. Like you, she took really assertive action to change that and I guess what's different here, she she completely changed how she offered her services and went away from custom projects and went towards highly standardized, highly, a very short time frame branding and marketing projects. And it totally revolutionized her business. In this interview, she walks through that whole process and then answers 60 minutes worth of what I thought were really great questions from the audience there. I record these things, I publish them to my website and... I'm going to link to that in the show notes because I, I am just very pleased with how rich and informative and honestly in, inspiring that interview was. It's, it's one thing for someone to say, well, here's what you should do. It's another thing for someone to have that come out of their personal experience. And Pia's story is great. And, and I think anyone who's interested in how they can increase profitability by changing how they deliver services will find that, that interview super interesting. So that's my pick for this week. Brent, you got any parting thoughts for us or closing words or final notes before we wrap up and send you on your way? Well, I want, I want to link to that interview now because I, I would love to increase profitability by just changing my services. So hopefully I can get that to you before this podcast goes live. Right on. I'm not sure I have, have parting thoughts. I think what you guys are doing with this show is really, really good. And I think if I've learned anything it's to you know find those people that you want to emulate or create businesses like and you know learn from them and and reach out to them carry i I call it carry your own bag you know that you should uh you know contact people like philip and jonathan or myself if what i've said is you know important to you or connected to you in some way and create those connections i think you'd be surprised at how few or how not often i'm not sure if that's the right way to to say that that happens I, i definitely you know, the people that reach out to me, I tend to spend a good deal of time with them and help them out in any way that I can. And I'm always surprised that more people don't, but I definitely, that's a practice that has been really huge ROI for myself is always going up after a speaker and introducing myself and getting cards and making a connection or hiring them or listening to a podcast and then just reaching out to the person and say, wow, I I listened to you and that was great versus just consuming content 24 seven. I think those human connections are really valuable and I just try to encourage people to carry their own bag and make those connections because I probably won't call you unless you reach out to me. So take that first step. Brent, it was fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for being here. That's our show. Uh, we'll see you <laughs> folks next time. And uh, yeah, bye for now. All right. See you. See you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.